On today's episode, I have the pleasure and the privilege of speaking with Lauren Howard. Lauren, who is better known by many of her friends and followers on the internet as L2, is the president and CEO of a company called L2, as well as Virtual Health. And Lauren, in all of her work, is really about clinical operations, healthcare technology, and helping women redefine professionalism. So at Virtual Health, L2 marries her experiences to provide infrastructure design, market fit insights, implementation strategies, growth models, and more to healthcare. And she works with groups all around the globe to help direct strategy. And she advises them on the growing digital health technologies and programs in a post-pandemic world. That is the professional hat that Lauren wears, and she wears it extremely well. And in addition to that, L2 is really an amazing advocate. She recently relaunched L2, which lifts up the voices of women, provides resources for growth, and also provides a community for support. And that is for anybody who is looking to redefine professionalism for themselves. Now, L2 has been somebody who has been impacting me, even when she hasn't realized it, for a number of years. I first found L2 when I myself was coming out of a really challenging end to a role that I had in the corporate space. And I was lost. I was struggling with burnout, trying to find my next chapter, having experienced some incredible highs, but some really traumatic lows. And I didn't know if anybody else felt like me and I didn't know who else I could talk to. And Lauren almost magically appeared in my LinkedIn feed one day. And ever since then, I have been hanging on just about every word that she shares. And in today's conversation, I think you will hear that so like so many of us, L2, Lauren, really is constantly balancing this idea of being an advocate for others and seeing the worth and the value and the opportunities for women and being so willing to be disruptive in the spirit of giving these women the role model and the voice that they so deserve. And yet being really honest about the work that she's still doing on herself and the struggles that she's still working through and the obstacles that even as a successful CEO and community leader and somebody who is beloved by tens of thousands of people on the internet is still herself working on her self-image and her own worth and her own value. And I found myself emotional at multiple times during this conversation because I so treasure when women like L2 share the work that they are doing on themselves and really pull back the curtain on their experiences. So I'm really honored and thankful to bring you this conversation today from Lauren, aka L2 Howard. Welcome to Hard Costs, the podcast. I'm your host, Katie Widrick, fractional CMO and funnel fixer. And guess what? I'm good in a crisis and I know how to see through the chaos to find clarity. That's something I've learned from working behind the scenes as a strategic partner for visionary CEOs. I'm on a mission to bring founders to the forefront and to tell the truth about the hard costs of doing business. You know, we all see wins shared on social media highlight reels every day. But what we don't often get a glimpse into are the tough times, the lost revenue, hiring and firing, moments that required major pivots, and so much more. On Hard Costs, we're bringing forward the stories that will help you understand that the roller coaster ride you're on is all part of the gig. 
And just like a roller coaster, the founder journey can be pretty thrilling. Take a listen while I share my own experiences, case studies from companies I've worked with, and I'm joined by some of my favorite founders to help you navigate this storm the right way. Now let's rise together. Hey, Lauren, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh. It's my pleasure. And I will tell everybody who's listening what I just told you right before we hit record, which is when I was picturing what I wanted hard costs to be and what I wanted it to stand for and the conversations that I wanted to have, I said to my podcast producer, I've got a list of people that I know will not BS me, will like really, really give me the straight talk and will get vulnerable and will get real and will not give me just like the traditional (laughs) marketing speak. And I was like, I know exactly who I need to go to for that. And you were on the list. And I was so delighted when you said yes. So thank you again for for being willing to be you and be willing to have this chat. Oh, yeah. Thanks. This is, the you know, these are fun. And I think the more we do them with like-minded women, the more it gives other women permission to be as much, you know, as much like us as they want to be. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you just used a word that I think is the ideal starting point, which is permission. I would say for anybody who follows you, engages with you, subscribes to your newsletter, like gets your message at any point, I would say it's really clear in the first sentence of anything you post that you are all about redefining professionalism, but also giving women permission to do the things that they've been told not to. Where does that come from? Yeah, I mean, mostly trauma. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I was in a bad experience or a bad situation for a long time. I internalized all of that as problems with me, even though I could see that people around me were perpetuating harm, that people around me were creating situations that hurt me. It still was about how I reacted to them and not the fact that they were creating them. Um, If you go into most workplaces now or many larger workplaces, they tell you that you have to give everybody a chance and let them, you know, give them positive intent for the things that they're doing. And nobody says, like, maybe we should hold people accountable for the ways that they make people feel around them. Um, And mostly, I think really what it comes down to is like, I I sat in this space for a long time thinking that it was just me because it had to be, right? I'm the only one who's in a good job that pays her well. Spoiler alert, I was 40% underpaid for that role. And I thought I was being paid well. Um, I have, you know, I'm working from home. I have freedom. I have flexibility. All of the other toxic, uh, abusive stuff doesn't matter because that's the trade-off. You have to be in a toxic environment and be abused. or There has to be something bad about an environment to give you the good things that you want. It's just not true. But I thought it was, I thought I was the only person in this situation that nobody else could understand it. And so I just sat in it instead of saying like, Hey, this feels bad and I don't know why. Um, or I don't understand how it feels like it's just me. Like this doesn't make sense. Um, and then the very first time that I said it to anybody, like, I feel like I'm going crazy because the environment I'm in is so toxic and it feels like it's a problem with me, not a problem with everybody else. The first thing that somebody said was, Oh my God, that happened to me too. And I was expecting, truly, I was expecting people to, you know, reach out and grab my hand and say, like, Oh, I'm so, I'm so sorry. It's so terrible. How did that? I can't even believe that. And instead, everybody said, Oh yeah, I was there. I remember that. And I was I, like, How are we all going through this? And none of us are talking about it. It's so interesting to hear you share that experience because 
that you were that person for me. So I came out of a really difficult corporate experience where everything had been going according to my plan and even exceeding my plan. So it wasn't even that I had bumped up against these ceilings or was not excelling in my work. It had gotten to the point where my ambition and my ability to reach the highest level and to get into leadership, all of a sudden I got there and I realized, oh my gosh, the experience of being here, at least in this particular environment, is so not what I thought it was going to be. And I found myself so anxious and also feeling this dichotomy of like, I'm supposed to be so thankful. I'm like, I I did it, you know, and there are all of these people who wish they were me and And because things really fell apart pretty rapidly and pretty badly for me, I was, you know, I was on a sabbatical and I remember you were one of the first people that was really put into my feed. And it was the first time when I thought, oh my gosh, here's another ambitious, high-performing woman who is acknowledging the fact that even reaching that pinnacle doesn't mean that everything is great. In fact, it's, it's, it's like that gilded cage I found. And then you have fewer and fewer people who you really can open up to. At least for me, I also had this feeling of like, well, my gosh, some of these people are making $15 an hour and scraping by and like, how dare I? But I love, I love what you just shared because your experience going through it obviously resonates with someone like me who's going through it. And then I now see the power of what you built with the community, which is like, Hey, we all need to be having these conversations. Was there an aha moment at all when you found that and when you started to build not just a following, but a community where you said, Oh my gosh, I have found my people. And now I have found a way to make a difference. Has there been an aha moment as you've been building the community? That's a really good question. I don't know if there was necessarily an aha moment. I remember there being a moment where I was like, oh, maybe I am allowed to be myself. Um, Because for so long, like I've always been a good writer, but I never wrote in my own voice because I thought like, what do I have to say? Nobody is, nobody's interested in hearing anything that I have to say. And so I would write for other people or I would write for, you know, I was a ghostwriter for a while. Like I found ways to write, but it was always like, a means to an end. I'm a good writer. Therefore I'm going to write. Or somebody would ask me to punch up their work or something Mm -hmm. like that. Um, and I remember, uh, when I left the role that I was in for a long time, I knew that I needed a network and I very much regretted not building a network while I was in that role. Um, and it just like, I didn't know what else to do. So I just started writing on LinkedIn and I, you know, there, it was, it was built to be easier to grow than I think it ended up being, even though we have had tremendous growth. Like, I think there were a lot of people who were like, you can get $20,000 in three months. And I was like, well, that's easy. I can do that. Um, and that is not what happened. <laughs> Just post um, every day. And exactly. Yeah. And then you'll make a bajillion dollars. And yeah, exactly. Um, but the reality was that, um, you know, it's at first I started doing like the very packaged, very positive, very like punched up stuff. And then I realized that people were kind of resonating with like the silly snarky side. Mm-hmm. Um, and the side that was, um, like saying the quiet parts out loud, even if it was just like really little silly stuff. Um, and then I had one post about how I was proud about there being a gap on my resume because I had abused myself for so long. And the fact that I was in a gap currently 
was really, really important to me because it was the first time I had given myself space to be anything other than somebody's employee or a business owner. Like I was just a mom, just is not the right word, but um, I was just resting. I was not all of these other things. And that was pretty early on. I want to say I was like maybe a month or two in to sharing on LinkedIn and it got a lot of traction. And from like really big accounts that I had no idea were even paying attention to me. Um, and that was when I went, Oh, maybe like, maybe there is something that needs to be said here. Like maybe there is something that needs to be pushed back against. Why are people so scared of having a gap on their resume? Why do people treat that as like pejorative or as a detriment? Like you clearly, you must have been fired from your last job. If you were without a job, like, yeah. Maybe and, and of course it must nap. be for gross incompetence or it must be because you had an attitude. Exactly. Or must, yeah. I, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. And so as soon as, as soon as the feedback on something was actually positive, um, not that it hadn't been before, but that it like all of a sudden people were like, thank you for saying this. I was like, are people not saying this? Cause this is like, this seems really obvious to me. Um, and that kind of led to this focus on saying the quiet parts out loud, giving people permission to do the same, um, which has led to, gosh, two and a half years later where we are. So how do you, well, I guess the question first of all is, do you have a thick skin? And the reason I'm asking is because you, you know, talked about this one post where it obviously resonated and the the reaction was largely positive, but I know that because of what you're saying and you are being disruptive and you are challenging people who really are like, they're, they're heavily invested in us being oppressed. They're heavily invested in these voices, not being elevated. So when that happens, what does it feel like to get a comment from, you know, Joe Blow? And it usually is <laughs> a very yeah. typical, you kind of know what it's going to be. But what is it? What does it feel like to get a comment that is rude or patronizing or disruptive? Yeah, um, I call them mansplain McWhite dude. There you um, go. That's the name. <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, they happen. They happen much less on LinkedIn than every other platform. And we've kind of recently branched out into other platforms. Um, you know, you have to have a certain amount of lack of self-awareness to say dumb things on LinkedIn because, um, you know, your name is right next to your employer. Like it's not a hard, it's not a hard task to track back to like whoever is responsible for you to say like, Hey, did you know that you have a misogynist and racist on your workforce? Um, so, uh, people tend to be a little bit more, um, a little bit more, maybe not respectful, but at least quiet on LinkedIn. Um, now there have been plenty of people who have had horrific things to say that I'm like, you realize you did put that next to your name on the internet. Um, and it doesn't bother me as much on LinkedIn, mostly because, you know, we've like, I don't post anything. I don't believe, mm-hmm. um, if people want to actually talk about something, they'll post something respectful as like, here's an alternative thought. What do you think about this? And then we can go back and forth. Um, but if people like there are super simple tricks to undermining, undermining people that a lot of people use and they get really mad when you laugh at them. 
Mm-hmm. And so, you know, lots of people will come on when I talk about, you know, I talk about um, maternal mortality for black women all the time and how it's grossly uh, h- higher than it should be. I mean, all maternal mortality is bad, especially in what is technically the most developed country in the world. But then on top of that, it's four times worse for black women. That's abhorrent. And it is not because they are in some way different while pregnant. Like it's not how it works. It's gross racism. Um, and people will undoubtedly have something to say along the lines of, well, you know, all lives matter. Those people are not coming to me or saying those things because they want to have a conversation about it. They're, they're saying something about it because equity feels like oppression when you're the oppressor. And so like, they want to feel like, you know, that they, you know, that, oh, it's bad for everybody, but you shouldn't be highlighting, you know, those people don't want to have a conversation. And so I don't have a problem either, you know, rolling my eyes at them or pushing back on it and just saying like, okay. Uh, or, um, calling them mansplain McWhite dude when it comes from, um, you know, those types. Um, it used to bother me a lot. I used to like sit and ruminate about it. Um, <laughs> and I think I've deleted one post ever over the feedback that I got. Um, but uh, it, if it's something that I'm secure about, if it's something that I'm confident about the message and that I wouldn't have said it any differently, I've, I have developed a thicker skin about it and it doesn't bother me as much. Uh, it's different on other platforms though, <sighs> like really different. Like on LinkedIn, people will come and say like, you're stupid or this post is stupid or why would you put this on the internet? On Instagram, they'll just show up and be like, you're dumb and fat. And you're like, why is it always a guy holding a fish in his profile that thinks I'm dumb and fat? Like, I don't. And why does that matter to you? Like, why is that? Why is that what you why? Why is that response valuable? Right. Um, why, why are you so bothered? Exactly, my existence in the world. Like you could have just scrolled by. Like that's less work. Yeah. You're yeah. burning calories by typing a response. Why does it matter? Yeah. Or like Why the people do you that need tell to say, you, "I'm unfollowing you." Cool. You could have just hit the button. And literally, people get so <laughs> mad because I literally say, "Don't let the door hit you on the way out." Like, exactly. bye. <laughs> um, and so that has been. Now I laugh at it. At the beginning, it was a little upsetting because the reason that I didn't do a whole lot of video for a long time was because I was insecure. Like I'm confident in the things that I write. I have no concerns about the things that I write. I know I'm a better writer than most people. Um, but my face is what it is. Can't do much about it. Like, and so, um, so at first it was like, Oh, people really do think what I was worried they were going to think about me. And then a friend of mine, uh, we were talking about it and she was like, well, you survived it. And I was like, yeah, this is kind of fun. Like she was like, you were worried about people saying or thinking this and then, you know, your response or then it happened and you didn't die. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess that's true. It has been a learning curve, but also like, I really like pissing people off. Yeah. Probably more than I should. (laughs) Like probably, like I probably should not get my jollies pissing people off, but like, I like, I literally posted something, actually reposted it because it didn't post correctly the first time. And I was like, no, I got to say this. And it was just about like something mean that somebody had said to me. And I really liked my response to it. And it made me laugh. And I'm sure it hurt his little white man feelings. And so I was like, this is fun. You know, it's Um, interesting. It helps to be totally contrary. 
Yeah, I think what's interesting about what you say, and and I've experienced this, not just with your feed, but with people that I really look up to is that, you know, I'm, I really like engaging and being active and we'll comment and we'll like, but there are a lot of times when it's just something that catches my eye. And for whatever reason, I don't engage with it, but I've seen it and it has implanted. And I think it's also just like the network effect of seeing these statements and also knowing that there are people advocating, there is something there. And so I always really think both with your message and and what I try to do with mine is, you know, you're also posting for the people who are quiet right now. They're posting for the people who don't feel safe liking or commenting because of what you said, someone's watching their, their activity, but you know, for them, it is, it's the, the equivalency to me of not seeing something when you see wrong in the world, when you see somebody acting rude or in an unsafe way or using racist language, you know, whatever it is, it's like, I really have to remind myself that I'm standing up for the person in that specific case, but I'm also standing up by the way, because my children are watching and because my friend is watching and the cashier is watching. And so like the internet is not different from the actual public space. And and I just want to credit you because I see that all the time. And I think, wow. I mean, if you, even if you look at analytics, we know that more people are seeing much more, many more people are seeing what we're posting than are actually engaging. And if it takes, you know, one mighty, mighty mixed plane pants to, uh, be disruptive, but 10 other people are, are, you know, being able to soak it. in. I think that's really important. Yeah. Well, and I think there's, there is a huge amount of people who don't, who deliberately don't engage with our content, but absolutely consume it. And that's evident by our newsletter subscribers. It's evident by, um, our views, obviously, even though LinkedIn has throttled a lot of that engagement. Um, and I'm, I'm shocked always by the number of people who will finally either like get the courage or be in a better situation and finally reach out and say like, I've been following you and reading your posts every single day for a year. And I'm like, where you been, dude? But I get it. Like, like I I'm not, you're not reaching out to like somebody who has any sense of self-importance. Like just say hi, we, we say hi because you're part of this community and we want you here. Um, but the, I mean, we've started entire things on our website, our ask all two series is literally because somebody reached out to me in the middle of the night with a question that she was too scared to ask anywhere else. She couldn't engage with any of our posts because she was in this like ongoing, really difficult legal situation with her mm. employer who had totally screwed her over. And she was just like, I just need to know what to do. And I'm desperate. And I was like, I can answer this question. I know how to answer this question. And so I can't, I probably can't quantify the number of people who are out there not engaging with what we do, but who are absolutely openly consuming what we do. Yeah. Well, I think that it goes back to the initial problem that you are really solving with the community, which is, I mean, even sometimes just the act of liking a post that your boss or that a colleague would see as antagonistic or disruptive. And and I think often the people who are so attuned to your message and so need to hear it, they really are being punished for every thought and every activity. And I experienced just a a small fraction of that, of really not feeling like I could share certain posts because everybody's watching. And so I I really just, I, I love what you are doing. I feel so honored to have been impacted by you and by your message. And then now I feel, and I imagine a lot of your followers and your community members feel this way where I feel like I'm in a different place a year and a half after initially engaging with your content 
And now I see, okay, I see a path. Like I see somebody who has been a trailblazer. And now, even if I'm executing it in my own way and I'm using my own voice, there is somebody who has shown me the way to do it. And what I love about really the impact that you're having is that you are now able to do that at scale. Like you have created a community of women who hopefully do feel more empowered and do feel more secure in their voice and are using it to it's it's I'd love that concentric circle, you know, idea of a movement yeah. like yours. I mean, it, it feeds on itself. When mm-hmm. you empower women, they empower other women. And that's the that's the point. I mean, when you empower anybody, they empower other people or, you know, just people in similar situations. Um, and you're supposed to lift while you climb. Like you're not supposed to ascend to the top without having a whole string of people behind you who are learning from the things that you learned and and able to do it easier because you did it. Um, but then I also, like I said the whole time, I have no desire to be the face of a movement like at all. I just want to say it enough until people start saying it so much that I don't have to say it anymore. That's it. It just happened to be that I'm the person with the words and I'm good at words and that's my only skill. And like, I'm not complaining. You can repackage it as pretty much anything. But, um, but it just worked out that that's who like that, that's how my brain works. And I was able to put these things together, but the goal hundred percent is to give these tools to everybody who's trying to figure it out now so they can give it to the people that come after them and that I can, you know, fade into obscurity and, and <laughs> that's, the dream. that's what everyone's and, cheating right. for. <laughs> exactly. And so, never have my face on the internet again. Uh, I mean, I think that is also a goal that I can totally understand and get behind. <laughs> uh, so what I love about what you shared is that you have, you saw a need for an inner circle for people to communicate and you've created that. But I'm wondering what your inner circle looks like these days when you need to vent or you have an idea. Is it a small circle of family and friends? Is it, do you consider L2 and, and the movement that you've created? Like, is that your inner circle? What does that look like for you personally? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I, the, we have our community, the high rise where uh, like I can literally show up and say anything and I use it as much as the people who are part of it, at, you know, for that supportive environment, you know, you know what I show up there with every day. Um, and then, you know, I am like, I, I am a person who um, is probably not surprisingly somewhere on the spectrum. Uh, and my, you know, my tolerance for, um, qualifying or quantifying what's going on in my head changes day to day. And so I do have a list of people on my phone. There's a lot of overlap between the thing, you know, between all of the different things who I can, who I can just say, like, I'm, I'm having a bad rain day mm. and, and it will be immediately, uh, you know, um, affirmed or, or refuted or whatever I need. Um, and, and people who I know will respond immediately, who either take it as, you know, take it as seriously as necessary. Um, and, uh, you know, just be there to be supportive. And that is not something I may have had it before, but I wasn't confident in it before. I mm-hmm. think there was all of this, you know, this negative self-talk and this idea that if I can't contribute something valuable all the time, that these friendships, you know, won't exist any longer. And now I can very confidently say that's not the case. You Mm -hmm. know, we have this really strong, powerful network of women who will show up every time, whether it's through the community, whether it's people I've known a long time who we just align in that way. Um, But by 
it, it again, it's another thing that like it feeds on itself by being that person for people, people will be that person for you. Mm-hmm. And like, there's always somebody who, you know, there's always somebody who slips in that has a different intention. You know, we get people who join the community occasionally and you can tell they're really there because they want to talk about their business <laughs> and they think that they can just pay the $29 a month and get a bunch of clients out of it. It never works out for them. We let them fade out on their own. They'll come and go. Um, as you know, they'll leave when they're, when they get the message that nobody is really here to talk about your business. That's not to say that we don't all do business with each other because we do. Um, but it's not what it's about. If you're coming there for self-promotion, like you're in the wrong spot. Nobody, you know, we want to know what weird quirky thing is going on in your brain. Not, um, you know, not what your newest special is. Um, and so that's not to say that like, we don't have, uh, people who don't really fit, like they're not there from like, from the perspective that they want to be vulnerable. They want to be, you know, radically accepting. They're just there. And that's probably not somebody that's going to do well in our space, even though they're welcome in our space at all times. Um, but when you create worlds like that, when you create structures like that, it, it feeds upon itself and it will give you more of that in your life because, because everybody's a little desperate for it. Yeah. I mean, I think again, that's, that really is kind of the lightning in a bottle that unfortunately you found is so common to particularly women who have experienced some type of toxicity in their role. And, um, so yeah, I I think you and I agree. I wish it weren't so common. I wish that we would have solved this systemic issue, but we're, you're working on it one, one person at a time. And it definitely (laughs) shows. I know like one of the things that catches me when you talk about this, you, I love that you are so confident in your writing because one of the things that really hits for me is just how powerful your ability to do storytelling is. And inside of that, what I have noticed about you is that on any given day, you might be talking about a real wrong that you see in the world and tagging, uh, you know, some corporate overlord and really calling them into account and rallying the troops behind it. You might be sharing a motivational story of a woman that overcame, but you might also be talking about the loss of a family member and and what your grief journey has been, what it felt like to have a premature child and go through health care and all of the, you know, navigating all of this. I don't know that my question is really, is there a line for you? Because I imagine that you're figuring that out in real time. I can't imagine that you have some list of do's and don'ts. That seems very antithetical to who you are. But I'm yeah. just wondering from your perspective, what motivates you to share some of those personal challenges? How do you feel like it's cutting through? What does it do for you? Not just what does it do for your audience, but what does it do for you to have that outlet? Um, I mean, there's always free dopamine and people appreciating and liking what you write. And I didn't realize how important that was to me until the last couple of years, because I I always thought I was this wallflower who never wanted attention. And now I'm like, I think I might want attention, but I want it on my terms. Like I want to be able to tell you when you're allowed to give me attention and when you're not. Um, and I'm totally fine with that attention being behind a computer screen. And, you know, I, I think there is a line. Um, there are a couple of really like firm lines that I have created and they usually have nothing to do with me. Like I don't share, I don't share my kids' names. I don't share their faces. I don't share things that I feel like would embarrass them, but they're young enough that like, it's all funny anyway. So we'll get there soon. And I don't share 
other people's feelings unless they've given them to me and given me permission to. So like if my husband and I get into an argument, I'm not going to share something about that because there is another party in that he deserves, um, you know, to be able to control that narrative. Um, I shared a lot about the garbage that his previous employer did to him, but that was with his permission. And, um, and, uh, it was a lot of fun for me. Um, but, uh, so there is a line and it usually has something to do with how it might make someone else feel. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that I have gotten to a point in my life where I don't always understand, or I don't always, um, or I sometimes refuse to recognize things that are kind of like off limits mm-hmm. because, why are they off limits, right? Like what, what have we been told about certain topics that makes them off limits and who does that serve? So, you know, women especially have been told that you should never talk about your salaries, that it's, it's, um, rude or it's boastful or it's, you know, whatever it's, you shouldn't talk about money. It's rude to talk about money. Well, all that does is serve to let people underpay you because you don't know how much you should be getting paid because you don't know what the next guy's getting paid. It serves to create environments where there's massive pay disparities between white people and people of color. Like that's the only reason that's there. And when you start questioning why these things um, are considered off limits or taboo or too personal, it's usually something that serves somebody else. It's usually somebody that serves an agenda that is not good for you or is not good for people at a whole. And things become they may not become less personal, but they become less shameful. And as if somebody like me, who's been highly successful with all of this baggage that I carry around every day and give myself a, a sore neck shouldering can say like, yeah, I take a pill every day. If I don't, I'm an angry troll and I yell at my husband a lot. Um, and like, I wasn't sad and crying all the time before I started it, I just like, didn't, everything was gray and I didn't enjoy life at all. Um, and I didn't have to be so deep in a hole that I couldn't get out before, you know, before realizing there was a problem, there was a problem based on something different entirely. Saying that means that some other woman who just snapped at her kid for the 10th time that day over simple kids stuff might be, might go, Oh, wait a minute. You mean the world's not supposed to look gray? Like I'm not supposed to just think that this is my life and this is as good as it's ever going to get. Um, and so like, why is it shameful that I take a pill every day? It's shameful because that serves somebody else because it's easier to deal with, with women who are kept small and unhappy by their circumstances than it is for them to believe they deserve more. Mm hmm. And we haven't necessarily seen people that can hold two things at the same time that you can yeah. be in therapy. You can receive therapeutic support for whatever's going on. You can be going yeah. through X, Y, and Z, and yet you can still show up in these ways. And I, to, I you right. know, one of the, it wasn't hard for me to talk about when I went into very, very intense therapy and I was exploring every option. It wasn't hard because it had such a profound effect on me. And as I started to work on myself and, and do these things, it so positively affected everyone and everything in my life that it felt like, well, who am I to hold this tool back from people? And also to right. show even as you're working on yourself or even as you're addressing things, it doesn't mean that everything's wrong. Everything's bad. Now you're not showing up to work. You can still be all of these things while in 
active recovery for whatever it is that you're going through. So right. your examples are really is a really good one. And and again, you know, I always think of myself on the marketing side as like I am my best sandbox. Like I'm going to try a strategy or something else out on myself first. And that was a great opportunity for me to say, "Hey, I got so low and I was experiencing so many negative things that I took a mental health sabbatical, like went to intense therapy. And by the way, this type of therapy was really cool. I didn't know anything about it. Here's how it worked. It wasn't scary. And even just walking people through yeah. what it is, I found to be really, really powerful for me, even just in that journey. It was to say like, maybe yeah. part of the reason I was supposed to go through this and be public was because uh, to your point, there's somebody over there that's just feeling like, oh, I'm a bad parent. No, actually... I'm experiencing all of these things that are not allowing me to be the good parent that I am. And here's a path I can walk down. So it's, I, yeah, like, I, love, I love these conversations. Let's stop creating false binaries for parenting. Like, like yeah. you have to be truly terrible to be a bad parent. Um, and that is, and even, and I, I say this, you know, we have worked really hard or at least I have worked really hard in our house to redefine this idea of good versus bad. So we're, you know, good, you're a good person, you're a bad person. Well, that's, that's, it does, that is almost impossible to define for anybody because somebody who I think is a bad person might do something really great for someone else. And then we, then who, what are they? Like, do I need to judge them or do I need to allow them in my life based on what they did for someone else? I don't know. And that's been a really big struggle because there are people in my existence who I think may inherently be good, but who I don't deem as safe for my environment. Mm -hmm. And so we have started redefining those things. And by we, I mean the conversations we have in our house as safe or unsafe. Mm -hmm. because somebody who is unsafe for me, I don't need to justify that to anybody. They're unsafe. Mm -hmm. And like, there are people in our, in our extended family who I know love us dearly, who are still unsafe. Yeah. Who I still would not leave with my children. Yeah. Who I still would not permit to inflict the emotional harm on my children that they inflicted on me, even if they would never. Mm -hmm. They're yeah. still unsafe. And so I think a lot of this bigger conversation about like, what's, what's permitted, what are, you know, what are we pushing back on? What are we redefining is getting rid of these like super false binaries. Like, are you a bad parent if you make your kids box mac and cheese instead of a four course meal for dinner because you're too tired to do anything else? Well, no, you're obviously not. But also like you're, those are the nights your kids are going to love. Yeah. yeah. And so is that good or bad? Is it the nutritious meal you want your kids to have? Maybe not. But is it the meal that like your kids are going to be like, man, this mom, she's great. She's the best. Is that that's valuable, right? <laughs> there is value to that relationship. And so, yeah, I, I think a lot of this transformation is, is like, maybe it, maybe it's not a good or bad job. Yeah. Maybe it's just not a job you can thrive in. I mean, I am a, a progressive mom of two young women living in Florida and we navigate this Same. frequently in terms of, you know, yeah. So 
you know, I, I really, I love the way you positioned it because the conversations in my house are not even, Hey, that is a, that is a bad friend or a bad parent of a friend. You know, I really want, and this is a, I have had to learn to accept this and have this conversation differently, but that it is okay for you to love someone and really honor a friendship, but not be okay with certain things that they might say or that they might believe. And so I love like that idea of safe that resonates so deeply with me because we talk a lot in our family about like, these are the choices we make. These are our values. This is how we walk through the world. But I also want to be really careful to not raise kids that are so binary. Like you were saying, like you, I can't be your friend because this is different. Now having a voice and saying this thing that you say makes me feel uncomfortable and I'm not going to be a part of it. This thing makes me feel unsafe. We have conversations like that all the time, but that is something, like I said, I've had to sort of not always be as bullheaded through the world as a parent, as I want to be, because I do think there are so many nuances that 10 years ago, I wasn't prepared. I just thought, well, there is people are this or that this is right or wrong. And yeah, parenting really, it really forces you to reevaluate. We, the boundaries didn't exist before I was a parent. Mm -hmm. And especially with people who have been particularly harmful to me, who I permitted to be harmful for a long time until I had kids and realized I would never let anybody do that to them. I didn't stop letting them do it to me. And that was the moment where there was, I mean, I remember when my youngest was like six months old, somebody in our extended family did something that I was just like, if you did that to my kid, you like, you might not walk out of this house on your own power. Uh, And I went, oh, I think it is actually like, if I, if I'm not, if I'm not strong enough to set those boundaries for my own benefit, uh, I'm certainly going to set them for these kids. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and it's, you know, the same thing we do in our house. My, um, we were watching, my kids are obsessed with, is it cake? Which I'm oh, so oh my gosh, obsessed <laughs> with. And we watched the first episode of the new season last night. And my, uh, my oldest said, mom, is that a boy or a girl? And mm-hmm. I said, I don't know. And she was like, well, what do you mean? You don't know. And I was like, we can't really know until we ask her or him or them. And she was like, why can't you just tell me? And I was like, because it's not my decision. I can't tell you that. And we have really, really focused on like not giving them definitive answers to things mm-hmm. that we can't answer mm-hmm. um, or, or not create, again, not creating those like false binaries. Um, and that is an easy one to pinpoint, right? If you if you don't believe in a gender binary, then, then that's going to be like the easiest example. But it, it works for almost everything. Yeah. Like it's, I mean, it's, I mean, not to good or bad, that, though, but yeah, it, it really is. Be curious and ask, you know, it, it is yeah. back to your word permission that you so beautifully started. It really is like, I am asking for permission to engage with you in the way that you want. And there's no way that my 10 and seven year olds are going to use that language, but I do think that they can be curious and open hearted enough to say, I'm not yep. going to suppose or impose right. on you. And yeah, those are, those are conversations that I think we're all really learning in real time. And, um, and, you know, yeah. I always have to think too, of being forgiven, of being forgiving of myself when I missed up because this is, it's new to me too. Yeah. Oh, and, listen, when she asked that question, my instinct was to say, Oh, that's a boy. Right. And right. then I went, but I love that. I don't know. Can't know. I don't know. I didn't ask. I did. I'm uh, not no, there to ask them. It's honestly not my business. 
Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And that's the other thing that's so interesting about kids is that I have found that sometimes when I bristle or I think, oh, this is where this is going, it's really often just a very innocent question and it has nothing to do with like pejorative statements or it. So they've been really good for me to remember too. like not everything is a pointy sword. Lots of things are. But maybe just like <laughs> <Right>. check <laughs> before you you run into it. I'm going to let you wrap with one question. Um, so there are a, a few mantras or quotes or sayings that I really turn to when I need a reminder of who I am and what I'm doing. Is there anything like that that you go back to or you find yourself repeating frequently? Yeah, actually, uh, my phone screen my phone screen is a is a. Uh, quote from Glennon Doyle. And I, I don't know how I feel about hearkening to Glennon Doyle. There's I'm conflicted about that, but it says we can do hard things. And I put it on my phone the day I left my job two and a half years ago. And it is a constant reminder to me that this is probably not the hardest thing I've done. Um, but I also remind myself fairly regularly that we have survived a hundred percent of what's been thrown at us so far. And like, that's an excellent track record. Even if it's been messy, even if it's been ugly, even if I have lots of battle scars to show for it, like still here, still breathing, you know, the next thing will come. Um, and some of that is just a function of age. You know, I've been through it now. I've seen the other side of it. I'm a little bit older. I'm definitely older inside than I am in years. And just knowing that like, all right, yeah, we've been through tough stuff before, but we'll get to the other side of it. Um, but I think those two, I mean, there's a ton of them, like, and, and the challenge for me, and this is, you know, just in the spirit of full transparency is like, there's stuff I say to women all the time when they need to hear it, when they need to be pushed in that direction that I have not internalized for myself well enough yet. Mm-hmm. And that is always going to be the challenge when you're in this position where you are both like a massively insecure person and also like massively convinced that every woman around you is excellent and can do anything they set their mind to, because it means that like, I need to take a dose of my own medicine sometimes. And that is both a wonderful wake up call and just like super jarring all the time. Yeah. Well, I I love that message. And I think that almost everyone listening to this will have that same sense of it's not necessarily imposter syndrome, but being really good at seeing the opportunities and the strengths in other people and still working on yourself. And I think that goes back to what we were talking about, which is you can be working, you can love yourself and want to change. You can love yourself and be working on yourself at the same time. And that is something that for me has also taken age and experience and really going the wrong way, knowing what it feels like to constantly be beating up on yourself, constantly be berating yourself. And it's nobody can live like that. So I'm going to keep working on myself and doing hard things. I know that you are as well. I'm so appreciative of your time and of your work. And you know that I will be cheering you on and I can't wait for our listeners to come and join you in the movement. It was wonderful to spend time with you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. You can learn more about Lauren and L2 at L2.com. That's E-L-L-E-T-W-O.com. And I really encourage you to find and follow 
Lauren and L2 on all of the social platforms. You heard us talk pretty extensively about the work she does on LinkedIn. And so if you are looking to see some of this long form storytelling that we discussed, the type of posts that Lauren shares with her community, if you'd like to engage with her, and if you'd like to learn more about L2 and the high rise program, LinkedIn is the best place that you can find Lauren and immediately interact with her. I am so thankful for those of you who listen to these episodes and who are thoughtful and who laugh and who sometimes cry and form opinions, not only on what the guests are sharing, but really on how you can apply these lessons to your own life. I often feel like the work I'm doing here in hard costs is primarily for an audience of one, me. And it's a very selfish endeavor because I enjoy these conversations so much. I'm also deeply thankful that so many of you are listening and are responding and are appreciating and telling me. So if you ever have any feedback, any questions, if you'd just like to pass on a kind word or a response to anything that you've heard on any one of these episodes, I am always open to hearing it. Thanks again. And as always for listening to Hard Costs. Thank you for listening to this episode. My hope is that through someone else's journey, you're able to find what you need to keep going because a rising tide lifts all boats. Doing business is hard, but none of us has to navigate it alone. So make sure you share this with a friend or a colleague who needs to hear this message. And I would love for you to write a review so we can keep getting these incredible founder stories to as many people as possible. If you liked this episode and want to learn more about my services or would like to book me as a speaker for your next event, head to katiewidrick.com. I'll see you on the next episode of Hard Costs.